Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here together today here at First Christian Church. I'm very glad that you're with us. And a welcome to everybody here in the West, everybody in the East. I've just was in there for a few minutes playing my horn in there. And so it's, uh, that sounds, there was the orchestra was in there today. And so I was in there playing with the orchestra. I wasn't tooting my own horn, but I kind of was tooting my own horn. But there you go. And those who are in Lovington, we're very glad you're with us as well. And um, those who are watching and participating online, it's all good to have you here. If you'll take your, take your Bible, please, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. So 1 Peter is all the way towards the back end or almost as far as Revelation if you can go backwards a couple books from, from Revelation at the end, you'll get there. Guests, I'm really glad you're with us today. My name is Wayne, and I'm part of the pastoral team here. While you're looking for 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read in verse 21 in just a few moments. Uh, you are aware, perhaps, that Leslie and I, uh, prior to me stepping into pastoral ministry, we were uh, musicians. We literally traveled around the world four times, uh, traveled with a band, and um, saw dozens of places. As a matter of fact, uh, we, we, we performed 200 nights a year. And so in the five years we were on the road, we were in a thousand different auditoriums, a thousand different cities, um, vi- churches, schools, venues, all kinds of stuff. And some of them were large, you know, it might have, you know, 15,000 people one night. The next night we might be in a little village, we'd be lucky to get 50 people, if you will. And so um. Uh, when we were in the little villages, it was, you couldn't stay in hotels and it wasn't really appropriate. To st- we had a bus, but it wouldn't be appropriate to sleep on the bus night after night. So we would often stay in homes. And uh, you can imagine, as a result, we saw a lot of very unusual homes and unusual things in homes. And we ate a lot of unusual food, but that's another story. What I want to tell you about today is that for a period of three or four days, we spent some time in Wales uh, one time up in, in, in the hills of Wales in a tiny little village in a farming community. And we actually stayed on, in the far, on the farmhouse of a family that was sheep farmers. And they hundred, had hundreds of sheep in the hills of Wales. Beautiful scenes. It was lamb season at the time. Lamb season at the time. And so one night we came back from the concert to discover that something had gone wrong with one of the lambs giving birth. And uh, the, the, the ewe had actually died in the process of birthing this tiny baby lamb. And um, we got back, and there's the shepherd holding this tiny lamb in his hands in the kitchen. And he said, I'm going to keep it warm here in the kitchen overnight, and then tomorrow I'll give it to another ewe who will hopefully raise this orphan as her own. And with that, he put it in the oven. He did. He put it in a box and put it in the oven. Some of you were thinking, no, he didn't. No, we didn't eat the lamb. Come on now. We did eat a lot of roast lamb that week. Every meal there was lamb to eat. But that particular baby lamb, he put it in a box. He put it in the oven. He left the door ajar and he said, the pilot light will keep that baby lamb alive all night long and warm. And then he said, I'll give it to the you tomorrow. And we, we learned a lot about what it's like to be a shepherd in the 20th century for the few days we were there. It was fascinating. And we're going to discover today, by looking at Scripture, some parallels to what took place in Wales in our lives back in the 80s, um, to see what's also in Scripture. And what we're doing is, we've been looking at a sermon series of late that takes the names of Jesus that you find throughout Scripture, unpacks them a little bit. So we know that you, perhaps you're familiar with names like Son of God and Savior of the World, Light of the World, things like that. But there are also many other names throughout Scripture that are given to Jesus. And since Easter, which is just a few weeks away now, is about Jesus, uh, we thought in preparing for Jesus' um, 
you know, to remember the, the passion and the holy week and his death and his resurrection, we need to spend some time looking at Jesus. And so today, as we've been doing in recent weeks, we're going to look at another name of Jesus. And this is where we're going to say, what does it mean when we say that Jesus is our shepherd? Is what we'll examine today. And after all, if you think about it, Easter is only possible because of the run-up to Easter. Namely, that Jesus made his way to Jerusalem and he was willing to die. And so we're focusing a little bit on his sacrificial death today as we have been in recent weeks. And the passage of Scripture we're going to read from 1 Peter 2 certainly does some of that as well. And in the process, it says that Jesus is our shepherd. So read with me beginning in halfway through verse 21, all right? of 1 Peter chapter 2, we read this. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. And then Peter goes on to describe some of the things that happened at Jesus' trial. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So this is about the trial that Jesus had before the Sanhedrin leading up to his execution. And Peter's saying, you know, this... this Guy, this man I followed, this who I learned later on really was God Himself. He could have offered divine rebuttals against the charges that were brought against Him. But instead, He left His life in God's hand and said, I'll, I'll go to the cross. I'll go to the cross. Read with me, verse 24. And we read that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you've been healed. This is the result of Jesus' death that our sins are forgiven, and that healing through the cross is now available. And this is what Peter is talking about, that Jesus went to the, ex- went to the, the trial, went to the execution, so that your sins and my sins could be forgiven, so that healing is made available to us. Verse 25. Why did he do this? Because for you, like sheep, were going astray. Remember talking to the shepherd in Wales, saying, what's with all the fences? I mean, had these literally hundreds of sheep and they're all penned in in, you know, big paddocks, big fields. And he says, well, the fences keep the sheep from wandering off. Some of the fences were made from stone that were over a thousand years old. No mortar, just stones placed there in the way in which they'd been built many years ago. And he says, it's the nature of sheep to wander away. For you, like sheep, were going astray. But now, you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's where that name comes up, that Jesus is our shepherd. You know, um, throughout Scripture, there's a lot of sheep and shepherd imagery within the Bible. Uh, you may be familiar with some of them. Here's one, for example, which is one of the, where you've got some sheep and shepherd imagery. It's found in Psalm 23. You'd know, you know this right, I suspect. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters and he refreshes my soul and I gotta go. On the tail end of winter, I gotta go. That's, who are we kidding? That sounds lovely. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of winter. I'm tired of the long, cold, blustery, awful, bitter, miserable, dark, wretched, icy. I'm not bitter about it one bit. The despicable, dis- I went through the dictionary and found all the bad words I could find. <laughs> despicable, disgusting, gloomy, gray, nasty, and vicious winter. I'm ready for a green pasture, are you? And it says that the shepherd leads us beside quiet waters. Quiet waters, 
says nothing about ice. Oh, please. If there's anything that makes one say, bring on the shepherd, it'd be coming to this point in the winter. But beyond pining for warmer weather, let's see if I can be more helpful for you today about the use of shepherd's imagery within scripture. And so I want to answer this question for you if I can, and that is why is shepherd a name that is ascribed to Jesus throughout the Bible? Straight up, what the scriptures tell us and point to us too very clearly is that Jesus was given the name shepherd because of the way in which he looks at people. He literally examines his worldview, if you will. Uh, there's, there's a great story in Matthew chapter 9. It says, towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and um, Matthew, who is hanging out with Jesus and one of Jesus' disciples, notices and, and realizes there's a general pattern to Jesus' ministry. And he says this, that Jesus went through all the towns and villages. He's going from place to place. He's teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And along the way, as he's doing that, he heals every disease and sickness. And then we get this understanding of how Jesus views people. He says, when, when, when Jesus saw the crowds, what did he do? He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So you have Jesus going from town to town, meeting people, and as a shepherd, he's assessing their needs. It's like, it's like that shepherd that we met in Wales so many years ago that held that little lamb in his hand. He knew exactly how to care for that newborn lamb in ways that I, I, I wouldn't have thought put it in a cardboard box and put it in the oven. I wouldn't have thought of that, put it in the oven. But Jesus looks around and he has compassion on people because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. There's, there's an interesting way in which this shepherd business of Jesus is, is um, pointed out in this passage of scripture. Did you notice that Jesus had compassion on the crowds? It's one of my favorite passages of scripture because of what that compassion really means. If you go back and look at the Greek, the original Greek there, the, the, the word is splunknong. I've had splunk, he had splunknong on the crowds. And it literally means this, an inward affection, and I'll just say it this way. It means your lower intestines are moving. See, so the, the ancient Hebrew world, they believed that emotions like love and tenderness and compassion, we would say it's in our heart, that we know really it's in our brain, right? In many ways, that it's manufactured in the brain. But the ancient Hebrew world says no, that those emotions come from, they come from deep down in your bowels. It's very weird, right? We want to go very, except if you know science these days, there are all sorts of neurons down there that when we feel love, it puts dopamine, dopamine to our brain. And so we have that Jesus is saying, he's looking around and he is, can we put it this way? I, I saw, I, I have this, it just, I feel it in my gut. Do you know what that feels like? Just something deep down. And so when Jesus looks out at the crowds and he sees them as individuals who are harassed and helpless, he sees that, that they need this compassion of Jesus Christ. It's all based on his compassion for us. Jesus wants the best for the people that are in front of him. He wants the best for you. And he wants it, if you will, from way down deep. And so with that in mind then, there are some implications when we say that Jesus is our shepherd, there's some implications I want to unpack with, for, with you today for both the church and for individuals. And if I may, 
I'd like to start with the church. So we have, in the passage we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, we have that Jesus is called the shepherd. Later on, in 1 Peter 5, Peter goes on a little bit further. He says, not only is he the shepherd, but he's actually the great shepherd. And um, the Greek there would say, would say the arch shepherd, like we have the archangel. So he's the archpoimen, the arch, which is arch, the, the highest poimen being shepherd. He's the arch shepherd. And if we were to say the chief shepherd, would be a way to put it. And that would imply that if he's the chief shepherd, then there are probably some under shepherds as well. And throughout the Bible, you have spiritual leaders in the Old Testament, church leaders in the New Testament, leaders of the people of Israel and Judah, who are, um, they're expected to be Jesus under shepherds. In fact, there are places in scripture where some of these under shepherds get called to account for some really bad behavior. There are some indictments against them for their lack, excuse me, their lack of spiritual integrity, their obvious lack of compassion, their unwillingness to act as trustworthy shepherds. And I want to point out one passage of scripture for you in this regard in Ezekiel chapter 34 where God actually comes against the spiritual leaders of the nation. He says, woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. You've not strengthened the weak. You've not healed the sick or bound up the injured. You've ruled them harshly and brutally. And therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I am against the shepherds. This is Ezekiel speaking on God's behalf, saying, you have, as a leader, as a spiritual leader, you have so maligned the people that I am against you. And there's a lesson for people like me right there, for people in my vocation. It's a lesson for pastors. It's a lesson for church staff members, for lay leaders. God has an expectation for people like me, people who take on leadership roles in the church. Jesus, the chief shepherd, expects his under-shepherds to use compassion in ministry. And that has an implication for a congregation. Say in the next few months, you learn that you're going to move from Decatur and your business or your family is transferring you to California or to Washington, D.C., to Florida, or you got to go live in Nashville, wherever. For whatever reason, you have to transfer and you say, we're going to find a new church when we get there. And how are we going to do that? What's the test that we can ask of this church to say, is this the kind of church that we should go to? Well, examine the compassion level of that congregation you're reviewing. Does that congregation mirror Jesus' compassion for those who are harassed and helpless? So friends, when you review the work of any church, when you review the work of this church, this congregation, when you review the job performance of a staff member or a lay leader in a church, when you review the, work, the job performance of a pastor, when you review the job performance of a lead pastor, you've got to ask, what is the congregation's compassion level, and what is the leader's compassion quotient? I would assess, if we look at our lives here as a congregation, that we're doing all right. But as, as people of the life of this church, it's a challenge that you constantly have before you that you are to say, hey, Wayne, we, we're, not, we're not meeting the mark. We need to shift gears. We need to take a different approach on this matter. You want to go, okay, Wayne, how, how, what does all that mean? How does that work? Well, maybe I could help you think of it this way. In that I came across a story a few weeks ago about historians who are completely surprised and very excited about the discovery of a blue-stained tooth that they discovered in the corpse 
of a nun from the medieval ages. You ask, a blue stained tooth? Has everybody excited? Apparently, yes. Here's what it is in the, pub, in the study that was just published recently. They, they went into a medieval monastery in Dahlheim, Germany. That's a city about 35 minutes southwest of Frankfurt, okay? And as they were looking through there, they found this, the body of this nun, and um, they've discovered that inside her teeth, she had some flecks of blue that accumul had accumulated over many years. That blue, they learned, was something called lapis lazuli. Now, that's the nun's teeth. We, just, we had great debate as to whether or not we should show that to you because it's kind of gruesome, right? But towards that front tooth, you can see a little bit of a blue thing right there. That little blue fleck there, and they found it in other places in her gums and other places in her teeth, is a, um, a product of Afghanistan. It's called lapis lazuli. It's a rare and um, not found in many places even in the world today, in Afghanistan and some places in South America now. It's, it's a stone that you can grind up, and if you do it right you can, and, and get it to the right level of, of, of wetness, if you will, you can use it as an ink. And so lapis lazuli was an expensive type of ink used in the production of lavishly decorated manuscripts. And so they had, when you see manuscripts like that from the medieval ages that have blue in them, they're made from that lapis lazuli. But blue ink is hard, was hard, and very expensive to manufacture. And consequently, they said, you can, you, if you're going to use the blue ink, you better be fully trained and know what you're doing. Here, here's the way to think of it. You know, the, the coffin mask of the young pharaoh, King Tut, it had lapis lazuli ink on it right there. And so that's how rare and valuable this was in days gone by. And to find it in the teeth of a nun from the medieval, medieval, medieval ages, what was she doing that she occurred to have that? Well, in order to get that to work, she would take that brush that she's going to write with or the nib of the pen or the, the brush, and she would, she would put it in her, in her lips to get it damp, dip it, and go like that. And over years, she got more and more of that stuff inside her not only on her teeth, but probably throughout her whole body. The same thing happened in, in going into World War II. Do you remember this? When women died in World War II because they were using a chemical that they were painting on the dials of the bombers so the bomb, the, they could see it in the dark, and they were doing the same thing with a brush, putting it in, her mouth, dip, in their mouths, dipping it, and they, their whole bodies were infested, and they died of radioactive poisoning. What's exciting for the historians on this matter? Well... Up until now, they'd assumed that only men were allowed to be scribes of this nature. But the fact that this lady, this nun, has this in her teeth would indicate something dramatic, changing understanding of history, that women were also accomplished scribes. But of course, there's some debate. Did the ink poison her and cause her death? It must have contaminated other parts of her body and it would appear she gave her life to create these beautiful illuminated texts. And it's a good metaphor for the church. When we're reviewing our church or any other congregation, when we're reviewing any pastor or anybody that's taking a leadership role, we have to ask, is that church, is that person dying to self for the sake of creating something of beauty within a community? 
or within another individual. Is that church's compassion quotient at a level where it's not about the members who are inside the walls, but are they up to adding beauty into the lives of people who are outside the walls? Is that ministry a reflection of Jesus' compassion for the harassed and helpless crowds? That's a reasonable question to ask of this church or any church. So when we say that Jesus is the shepherd, that's an implication for the church. But let's also talk about implications for individuals when we say that Jesus is the shepherd. And to, go, to do that, we have to go back to Matthew 9 again, where Jesus is looking out, and he sees the harassed and helpless, and he determines they're like sheep without a shepherd. You know, Jesus used that, that understanding from time to time. Like one time he said, so a good shepherd is somebody who has like 100 sheep, and they're coming home at night, and they're counting the sheep as they're going in the fold, and they get to 99, and the line is empty, and suddenly the shepherd realizes, oh, there's one missing. And a good shepherd says, I'm going to go and find the one sheep, 99 plus one more. It has an implication for you, friends. He's looking for you today. You may be harassed and helpless, but I've got really good news for you. God is planning for better days for you. The harassed and helpless moments that you may have, they do not have to last. You don't have to fear the days ahead. And in this regard, I've asked Leslie to sing over you today. I say over you, exactly, because she's going to sing from Psalm 41, direct scripture today, that speaks to the feeling we all experience from time to time when those moments of harassment and helplessness seem to describe our lives. May I remind you that there's a great shepherd, the shepherd of your souls, that is very much interested in, um, in speaking into your life. And so as Leslie sings... Just allow this simply to wash over you. The scripture's talking about the washing of the water of the word. Just allow the, water, the word of God. Psalm, Isaiah 41 is what she's going to sing to wash over you today. Do not fear for Look about, for I am your God, and I will strengthen you, surely I will help you, yes I will, surely I will uphold you. With my righteous right hand Do not fear For I am with you Do not fear I am your God And lay that weight Upon the shall mount up with wings as eagles they shall walk and not faint they shall run and not 
Friends, here's what I know about the Good Shepherd. You may feel like God is a ways, ways off. You, you, you may sense that it not, not, it's not only is he a way off, but you've pushed him far away. And as a matter of fact, he's called you to better spirituality, but in the past you've shrugged your shoulders, you've turned your back, or you might even did, done what this lamb did at one point. <laughs> you might have said that to God. But the shepherd is still calling you in Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. I mentioned that the Welsh sheep farmer that we met many years ago took that little lamb, that orphan lamb, and put it in a box and put it in the oven and saved its life. But I'm trying to figure out, as I'm watching him do that, I said to him, well, how, how is the, the mother you going to take this, this orphan lamb? How are you going to teach that mother to take that lamb? He said, well, sadly, what happens sometimes is when we, we not only lose mother sheep, sometimes we also lose the newborns. And he said, so what we, have to, what we want to do, it's a gruesome thing, but we do something that's pretty rough at first that causes both the grieving you and the orphan lamb to live. He says, in the morning, I'll go and I'll find a ewe that has lost her lamb overnight. I'll take that dead lamb and I'll skin it. He says, then I'll bring that skin that's gonna look like this, right? It's gonna look like a little white skin like this. He says, and I'll take the skin off the dead lamb and I will, I'm gonna cut the four, legs, the four legs out of the skin. This is Leslie's gloves and she doesn't know I took them. True, she doesn't know I got them. Got them out of the closet this morning. She got to play the piano next winter in the, in the cold. And he says, what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll wrap that skin around the orphan lamb and I'll give it to the ewe and she will smell the skin from her baby and she'll take care of that orphan and she will let it nurse and her grief will be assaged and the lamb will live. The death of one lamb managed correctly in the hands of the shepherd 
brings life to an orphan. An expert shepherd knows how to care for both a grieving mother and somebody who's helpless. The great shepherd, regardless of your circumstances, is caring for you. You may have denied that in the past. You may have poked your tongue at it in the past. You may have said, I'm not interested. You may have done exactly what it says in in Isaiah 53, that all of us like sheep have gone astray, that each of us have turned our own way. You may have done that. But the shepherd is calling you. You may have feelings of harassment and helplessness, but the shepherd of your soul is looking over the crowds and sees you as an individual calling for the lost one of the 99. This morning, I invite you to answer the call of the shepherd. Come back to the fold. Be in the hands of the expert shepherd. Would you stand together, please, and let's pray. Father, um, I'm aware that in with this many people gathered together in, in worshiping today, there are going to be some, Lord, who are really feeling really strong and really great, and there are going to be others, Lord, that are feeling a little bit like that orphaned lamb. I guess you could say, Lord, they're feeling like they're harassed and helpless. And Lord, for those who are feeling really good and strong, we thank you. For those, Lord, who are saying, hey, I just need some help, Lord, I ask you would come alongside them right now in the name of Jesus Christ. Friends, while everybody's still praying, seeking your own place before God, if you're here today in any of the three rooms, in here in the West, in the East, or in, at Lovington, or even at home watching online, and you go, man, I need some help, I'd like to invite you to take just a, a small step of physical posture that says, I need God today. For some, it may be a case that you've not walked with God at all and you've poked your tongue at God in the past. For others, it may be that you've walked with God for a long time, but man, it's just like you need, you need to know the compassion of God again. So if that's you, I'm inviting you to just simply bend your arms at the elbow and put your hands out in front of you and say, God, I need you today. I need you today. Lord, for those who are far from you and are making this move, making this move, I pray that you bring them and call them to you. And then, Lord, though, for those who are just in man, work or school or the house, the, the, whatever the case may be, in the neighborhood, it's just there's a lot going on. And I pray that you would graciously, graciously, oh God, remind us all, and these in particular, that they don't have to fear, that those who wait on the, upon the Lord will renew their strength, that, Lord, they'll they'll walk and not grow weary they'll run and not faint and they'll mount up on with wings like they were eagles Lord work in all of our lives that way we pray today in Christ's name Amen Hey friends if you're in any of the three rooms that gather for worship where we call ourselves First Christian Church today we're going to step into worship have the worship teams come and continue to lead us in worship And in all three rooms, there's going to be someone at the front who would be glad to pray with you. Maybe you did this with your hands. You'd like to say, hey, I would really now like somebody to pray personally with me about it. We'd love to meet you here at the front of all three rooms. 
See what God does in your life. You come at this time.